If you could, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 again. We were there last week, uh, and last week we focused on the angel's song. We focused on peace in particular. We focused on how the promised Prince of Peace purchased and made peace through His death and resurrection. The angels sang of peace, but they also spoke of joy. And so, that's where I want to spend our attention this morning. You know, there is a beautiful and biblical relationship between joy and peace. In Scripture, joy and peace so often go hand in hand. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12, it reads, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And Paul in Romans 15, verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. But what is joy? Commonly, joy is defined as a feeling of great happiness. And there is no doubt in my mind that the angel intended us to be delighted to hear the good news of the birth of the Messiah. So we have already some sense of joy in what it is, some sense of the greatness of that joy the angel spoke. But at best, that is all we have. We only have a sense, a taste of that great joy. On one hand, that is to be expected. Psalm 16 verse 11 says that God's that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. So we will not experience the utter heights of joy until we dwell with God in glory. But we are Christians who have been given the Spirit, and the Spirit has given us the seed of joy. And this seed of joy is to grow into the fruit of the Spirit. Joy and peace are both fruit of the Spirit. And so we should desire to see this seed of joy grow into a a bountiful, beautiful fruit. And just as Paul prayed in Romans 15, 13, for the, the God of hope to fill us with joy and peace, we should be praying that God would fill us with, with greater joy. And I, I pray that we all will see that joy is a gift much greater than mere happiness. And I pray that as we look again together at the good news that the angels speak, that our joy in Christ will grow. Now, I am nothing but a servant laboring in the church of Christ here to to water the seed of joy. It will be God who brings the growth. But according to the grace of God given to me, let us return now to this passage again. Let us read and focus on the nature of joy. Let us give ear to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands 
forever. Let us pray. Our great, merciful Father, your word is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. May your Holy Spirit work through your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would become our delight, so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I also wanted to say a quick thank you. Uh, You all responded very graciously to my confession that I'm a Christmas Scrooge. Uh, So I wanted to say thank you. That went really well. I didn't know what what I would get. Uh, But as I also said, it's not that I don't hate everything about Christmas. I have a favorite Christmas movie. It's The Grinch. Uh, My favorite... (laughs) I wish I was kidding. Uh, My favorite book is also uh, A Christmas Carol uh, with Ebenezer Scrooge. And and again, I I wish I was kidding. Um, But as I also shared, some of my favorite Christian hymns of all time are the Christmas hymns. And if I had to pick a single favorite, and that's a hard thing to do, right? Pick one single Christmas hymn, it would be God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And I, did, I didn't look ahead at the bulletin, so when Charlene started playing at first service and the, the bell choir started doing their thing, I, I got excited. I love that song. I love the words of the song. God rest you merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. I love those words. But I have another thing that I like about this song. Uh, most people, what I like is it's kind of it's got a fun name because most people don't actually know what the name is supposed to signify, what the name means. Now, you can double-check me here, right? If you want to look in your bulletin, it, it's the same. It's written correctly in the bulletin. Or you can open up the hymnal, uh, hymn number 211. If you look, uh, you will see that the, the name, God rest you, Mary, gentlemen. There is a comma between the word Mary and gentlemen. You see, the, the reason that stands out is because we tend to think of the word Mary as an adjective. We think it's describing the gentleman. Here's a, a couple of jolly dudes. And it sounds like it, they're saying, God, rest you jolly dudes, which is not at all what it's saying. Mary is not an adjective. In, in fact, if you look back at the, early, the earliest manuscripts we have of this song date back to about the 1650s. And if you look at the, the general usage of the term Mary or even uh, God rest you, Mary, you'll see it's more of a benediction. Meaning, Mary's not an adjective. The phrase, God rest you, Mary, gentlemen, uh, would translate to something more like, gentlemen, may God keep you in peace and happiness. I love that. Happiness, peace, comfort, and joy. And again, we see that beautiful relationship between peace and joy, the beautiful coming together of these ideas. But as we asked before, what is joy? The angel spoke of not just joy, of great joy. Uh, Karan Megalane, you can hear the word mega in the, the Megalane. It's great joy. And we've, we've admitted and said that joy does entail happiness. That is true. But is that all the angel means by great joy? I would say not. I would say great joy is the Christian's joy. 
It is the joy that grows in the heart of a believer. It is a joy gifted to the believer by God himself, and it delights in God and, and, and in his works. Christian joy, the kind that we are seeking to grow in and experience, is categorically different from regular earthly happiness. Now, Scripture does use the word joy to describe regular happiness. I, I want to be fair. When Jesus was explaining the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, he said that there are those who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. There's much we could unpack about that verse that we simply don't have time for this morning. But it suffices to say, that is not an example of Christian joy. That is an example of earthly joy. The unbeliever's joy is over, uh, over uh, external circumstances. It is fickle. It is fleeting. And it delights in these external things beyond itself in either the circumstances or in objects, which are always constantly changing and not always for the best. And so the unbeliever, they, they could look at the gospel and say, there are things I like about this. Who doesn't like the idea that God loves them? And if someone feels that they need to turn their life around, well, maybe this is the way. And so the gospel serves a purpose. Externally, they think it serves a purpose and meets their needs, but the second things start going wrong, they dump it because it, the word took no root. And therefore, the root, if, since it was not there, the fruit was not real joy. It was earthly joy. But Christian joy will remain despite the circumstances. And I think uh, the exemplary uh, epistle to prove that point is Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's an excellent example. The, the letter to the Philippians, it, it is the byproduct of a heart that is just saturated in Christian joy. Paul tells the Philippian church how he prays over them joyfully, Philippians 1.4. He is filled with joy at the advance of the gospel, verse 118. He is filled with joy over his friend's unity of heart, verse 2.2. He rejoices and expects the Philippians to rejoice with him, even though his death may be imminent, verses 2.17-18. through And then he commands them, rejoice in the Lord, in chapter 3. And again, in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, even though this letter seems and is overflowing with happiness and joy, joy for Paul was not merely about him being emotionally happy. Paul also describes deep sorrow in this letter. For example, Philippians 3.18, he says, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk, with, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is also not putting his joy on circumstances beyond his control. After all, he is writing this letter from prison. And if you follow anything about Paul's life, you know he went through much more and much worse than just prison. In one of, fam of his famous tirades, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, 
And he, I'm skipping a ton because there's a lot. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And then Paul will take it a step later in Romans. Not only can we have joy despite our suffering, we can also rejoice in our sufferings. In the famous Romans chapter 5, we read, Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So if you have been justified by faith, that great joy of which the angel spoke is available to you through Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Great joy, Christian joy, comes from the word of the gospel taking root in a heart made alive by God. It is a gift to be received. And this is a beautiful thing. And yet we ask the question again, is that all there is? Now I say that as if having imperturbable joy gifted to us through Christ were some small thing. It is no small thing, but as is so often the case in Scripture, if you just dig a little bit deeper, you will find that the good news of the gospel keeps getting better. And that is particularly true when you view joy against Scripture's backdrop of sorrow. You may not understand immediately what I'm trying to say, so let me give an example. I'll give a couple. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I love God rest ye merry gentlemen. I love it. Besides the words, I also love that it's composed in a minor key. For the non-musicians, songs in a minor key often have a feeling of sadness or tension or drama. And that is certainly true for God rest ye merry gentlemen. While it speaks of happiness, peace, comfort, and joy, the music has an almost haunting note of sadness and drama that pushes the song along, but not in a way that detracts from the happiness, joy, peace, and comfort, but rather in a way that adds depth to it. I don't think this was, on, this was an accident. Just as peace and joy have a beautiful relationship in Scripture, I, so too does sorrow and joy. Now, they are two different kinds of relationships, to be sure. Uh, peace and joy have almost a symmetrical relationship. There's a beauty in that they come hand in hand so often. Meanwhile, the relationship between sorrow and joy is almost uh, more of a counterpoint. Sorrow can serve as the backdrop in which the light of joy can be seen more clearly and understood with more depth. Let me give one more example to convey what I, what I mean. I love the winter, right? So there's more things I love about the Christmas season. I love winter. I love that it's cold. I also love 
and this may shock some of you, I love that it gets dark early. I, I love that the sun goes down around 4 o'clock. My wife doesn't get it, but I love it. But I don't love darkness for darkness' sake. I love that after about 4.30 p.m., I can go outside and see the moon shining bright in the sky. And especially in the winter, when there's a fresh snowfall covering the ground, I love how the, the moon can reflect off the snow and it illuminates the whole night with this cool white glow. And especially during the Christmas season, one more thing I'll admit I enjoy. Isn't it great to just drive around and see the Christmas lights? If it were not for the darkness, I wouldn't be able to do that. So, when I put it that way, I hope you understand a little bit more what I mean by sorrow and sadness as a backdrop for joy. Think also of the star shining in the night sky that the wise men saw. Matthew 2.10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's those words again, Karan Megalane, great joy. And think of how the angel appearing at night with the glory of the Lord shining around him, the angel brought good news of great joy, Karan Megalane, great joy. Now, God could have sent that angel at any time. He didn't have to do it at night. And I don't think God waited until the evening because he thought Mary would prefer to have visitors after having just gone through labor after around bedtime. No, I think, and we're speculating to the mystery of God's providence, I think that the very scenery of that moment, the very backdrop of darkness and night, really served as the perfect counterpoint for the good news of great joy that had just been delivered. The darkness stood in stark contrast to the glory of the Lord shining around the angel. I can't help but think about how the darkness of night stood in stark contrast to the glory of the Lord. It just seems like a beautiful setting. But darkness, the night wasn't the real problem. That's not what's causing deep sorrow in our world. No. The real backdrop for great joy was not the night. It's sorrow from sin. It's from spiritual darkness. You see, the angel wasn't leaving the throne of God to come to a world at peace. He was coming into a world at war, a world filled with people lost in spiritual darkness. The earth was a land of curse and sorrow. We read in Isaiah 24, verses 5 through 11, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. This was the estate of the world into which the angel entered. And there's a reason why it's so bad, because of sin. If you follow the biblical narrative, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. If they had kept God's law, God would have blessed them richly, and the nations would have seen it and marveled. God even warned them in Deuteronomy 28, 47, that if they did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, all the curses of the law would fall on them. And by the time of Isaiah's ministry, the Israelites had utterly failed to be that blessing, that example, that light to the nations. They instead became like every other nation, wrapped up in and warped by sin. 
So God judged the Israelites. He broke up their nation, split them in two, and then had nations conquer them both to drag the people away to foreign lands and even to destroy the temple of God, the temple where God had chosen to dwell among his people, the temple which when Solomon finished building it and offered sacrifices, God's glory filled the temple. But now that's all gone. The light of the nations vanished from the earth. Joy had grown dark. Gladness on the earth had been banished. Even after the time of Isaiah, after God had brought the Israelites back and they began rebuilding the temple, we read in Ezra 3.13 that the people wept over the new foundation of the temple. It was smaller, so much less glorious. And sorrow upon sorrow, when they finished the temple, there is no record in Nehemiah that God filled that temple with his glory. It was just a building. God had not returned to dwell with his people, at least not in that way. This was the spiritual estate of the world. People estranged from God, captive to sin, all joy had grown dark and goodness was banished. But then one day, God did send his glory. The prince of peace and the light of the world was born to a virgin. He stands in stark, stark contrast to the deep darkness to which people dwell in. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Joy and peace at the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. With the backdrop of darkness and sorrow behind him. But it's worth reflecting, brothers and sisters, that this backdrop of sorrow and darkness, it didn't last for only that first night. Jesus' entire life was characterized by sorrow. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus' earthly life was full of sorrow. From his lowly birth in a manger to his shameful death on the cross, he gave up the glorious existence with the Father to endure these things. And I think St. Augustine of Hippo put it most beautifully when he said, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain thirst, that the light sleep, that the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And if there was ever one person on this planet who had reason to experience difficulty, to experience 
lack of joy and sorrow upon sorrow. It was Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, he endured it all. He endured it all, it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 11 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Think of that. The man of sorrows endured all of it for the joy that lay laid ahead of him, the joy of obedience to his father, and for the joy of seeing his people accounted righteous. That's Christian joy. That's great joy. That is the joy that grows in the heart of a believer. That is the kind of joy that God gifts to the believer. That's the joy that delights in God and in his works. That is the the type of joy that if you've been justified by faith is available to you through Christ. It's an imperturbable joy, one that is not based on external circumstances because it is based on Christ and what Christ has done for you. Jesus shined his light in the darkness. He took the curse of sin. He suffered sorrows to rescue us. And so we can sing joy to the world. We can sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The world was under curse and sorrow and darkness. Jesus came to take all of that. If you fix your eyes on Christ and not on your circumstances, that is where you will find joy. If we fix our eyes on Christ and not ourselves, that is where we find salvation. Just as your salvation is secured because of what Jesus has done, your joy is secured because of him. Now, Christ was not immune to feeling sorrow, but his joy was being obedient to the Father and knowing that we would be accounted We would be accounted righteous through him, and that righteousness could not be taken away. And now Jesus takes that joy and gives it to you, his joy he gives to you. Jesus says in John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That is great joy. That is the gifted joy that makes our hearts delight in our wondrous Father and rejoices over what Jesus has done. That is a peaceful joy that the Spirit grows in the believer's heart and can never be taken away. It is a loving joy. That means, as First Peter puts it, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is a joy that shines brightly, especially so against the backdrop of sorrow and darkness that we face on this earth. And that's an important thought we should stop to consider. There is no Christian on earth that doesn't long to have a a greater experience or more knowledge of that great joy. But there is an 
an existential problem. There's a problem of the heart, a problem we all face, which I want to speak to. The angel spoke good news of great joy. He heralded the message of great fulfillment of God's promises. The Prince of Peace had been born. He was bringing peace to earth with him. And if you believe in him, you have every reason to be exceedingly happy. But here's the problem. We don't feel happy. We don't always feel joyful in this world. Seldom, we don't even feel joyful about our salvation. Yes, we've, we've heard the angel's message. Yes, we've believed. We have faith. We love Jesus. We are saved. And yet, I don't always feel joyful about my salvation. Now, as I said, joy is a gift, and the seed of joy is something that every Christian has. For some, I think we can all think of one person. For some people, that, that seed is full-grown. It, it is That person's joyful to the umph degree all the time. Most of us, we, we struggle at times. And yet, there are still others who absolutely despair of feeling the joy of their salvation. Christian writers throughout the ages have written on that kind of topic. Puritans, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper, many others, they describe this experience as a spiritual depression that can cripple the Christian walk. And that is a topic that really deserves a sermon series of its own. If you find yourself struggling to experience the joy of which we speak, of which the angels spoke, seek help. Seek Pastor Drew. Talk to a trusted Christian friend or mentor. But if I may speak a few words to you, dear Christian, I wish to encourage you. Firstly, you are not alone if you struggle to find joy. David, a man after God's own heart, wrote some of the most startling psalms of lament. He wrote Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And yet, David's also the guy who wrote Psalm 4, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I don't know what abounding grain and wine looks like, but I'm sure this is very joyous. And do you see that spectrum all within the one heart of David? A man after God's own heart. He can go from the, the pits of despair all the way to my heart abounds in joy. So if you find yourself struggling to experience joy, you are in good company. Believers such as David shared similar problems. And I believe if we were all honest with each other, we probably struggle more than we would care to share. But because we are in such good company, we can all share the same prayer. We can pray along with David, Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And Jesus himself bids us to pray like this. He says in John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy 
may be full. What a glorious promise that is for the saints to ask, and he will listen. Now, because we all would love to grow in the fruit of joy, it's important that we stop to remember that it's not something we do by our own efforts. Have you ever told a stressed person to just calm down? Have you ever told a depressed person, just cheer up? Have you ever told an ADHD young pastoral intern, just pay attention? Doesn't work. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit is not something you can just chum up, particularly joy. And I think that's something we're quick to forget. But those who struggle to experience joy are blessed with a constant reminder that they must go to Christ. If you struggle with joy, you know you can't lift yourself up. You know you are stuck, but you also know to go to Christ. And that's actually a huge blessing. That's something many of us often forget. We like to think we can do things on our own, and it's not until we're knocked down that we finally realize, I've been going out on my own the whole time, and I messed up. Now, we are prone to forget those things, but especially so when we lose sight of that backdrop. Once again, this backdrop of sorrow is important. When we lose sight of that backdrop of sorrow from which we've been saved, we can forget where we've come from and what we've been saved from. We, who dwelt in spiritual darkness under curse and in deep sorrow, we were unable to bring ourselves out of that. Sure, during that time we could conjure up earthly joy, and when all things went well, it was okay. We coped. But such joy is fleeting, of no eternal value, and nobody wants to live life just coping. But the gospel and its blessings are all of grace. It is God who must change the soil of our heart to receive the word of the gospel. It is God who grows that fruit of joy. Jesus entered our world of darkness and sorrow. He endured its tribulations even to the point of death on the cross so that you might be lifted out of that murky mire and put onto solid ground. So look to Christ, all of you. Look to Christ. Despair of finding joy apart from him and rejoice that in him, there is fullness of joy. Now, I want to conclude uh, one final observation about joy. The great joy of our salvation is not a zero-sum game, by which I mean it's not like a piece of pie. Once I take a piece of pie, you're not getting that piece of pie. It's gone. There's only so much to share for everyone. That's zero-sum game. Earthly joy is like that, though. I can have my pile of goodies and toys, and you can't. I can have my good vacation times, you can't. We, we take and steal. We, we hate and fight and get angry. And our circumstances and our goods are what our joy is dependent on if you live for earthly joy. It's a zero-sum game. It's one you cannot win. But Christian joy is not a zero-sum game. It's a game that we all win because of Christ's victory in overcoming the world. And as we witness other people experiencing that joy, our joy does not diminish. In fact, our joy grows as we see the gospel go forward. Consider how Jesus tells us in Luke 15, 10, that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
the joy grows. Consider how in Acts 15, 3, Barnabas and Paul are going around speaking about how the repentance of the Gentiles was going, and it says that brought great joy to all the brothers. Great joy. Karan Megalain. Great joy. Christian joy, not only is it great because of the backdrop in which it is placed, not only does it stand in stark contrast to the sorrows and sadness and darkness of this world, not only is it imperturbable because it is given to us by Christ himself, but it grows and grows. And so if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, if you have managed to listen to this whole sermon thus far, don't merely receive these words as possible good news as this might work for me. No, we pray that the word takes root. If you have not believed in Jesus, I urge you to do so today. Today is the favorable day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Lay down your guilt and shame that clings so close and enter into the joy of the Lord Jesus. Because it will not only be angels who rejoice over your repentance. It will not be just us here at St. Stephen. It will be God himself happy to have a child home. So do not remain under the curse of sin. Do not remain in the dark. Jesus suffered the curse of death and sin, and he sat in the dark tomb. But that tomb is empty. He has risen again. So repent and believe, and we will all depart here together, just as the disciples did when they discovered that empty tomb. They departed with great joy. Karan Megalane. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know so little of your glory and goodness and joy, and yet you give and give. You reveal and make known if we only ask. And so we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, who told us to pray, ask that our joy may be full. Fill us with the joy that cannot be taken away, and may we live this life of joy in the sight of others so that they too might come share in our joy and our joy together may be complete. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.